there's an element of, you know, if you're working at this level, maybe you should be playing at this level. You know, and the simple way of looking at that is if you're a summer mountain leader, maybe you should be personally going into Scotland in the winter and having, and, you know, having your epics. And so you know where, you know, you know, you know where your, your level of competence is. Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Fionn Davis, emergency medicine and expedition doctor. Today we're switching it up a little bit and we're talking to an extremely experienced adventurer and expedition leader, James Dyer. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. So um, a little bit about James and how I first met him. So um, he was our chief expedition leader and I went with the British Exploring Society to the Yukon in Canada, um, where I was working as a medic. And we subsequently bumped into each other on a training weekend in Ireland, uh, had a good catch up over a beer in a nice Irish pub and talked about a whole range of topics that I'm hoping we're going to get get into a little bit more today and explore a little bit more today. So a little bit about James. He is very passionate about expeditions and learning about new places. He's been inspired by wildlife and remote areas his whole life, and he's been dreaming about expeditions since he was a child uh, growing up in South London. He's been lucky enough to have been part of many expeditions, leading over 50 expeditions, and he's been involved in well over 100 to remote areas all all around the world. Um, He believes that expeditions are powerful mediums to help educate and inspire and that they can be drivers to help in environmental conservation, social justice and change. Changing the world through expeditions, I think, is how to sum up that sentence there. (laughs) He's um, got experience of expeditions leading in the Arctic, the jungles of South America, Southeast Asia and mountains throughout the world and deserts of Africa, Middle East and South America. And... James and I are both looking forward to a trip to Nepal in a couple of weeks for you, isn't it? Um, leading yeah, yeah. on an expedition in the Himalayas. Yeah, two weeks, I think. Two weeks. So when uh, when he's not out adventuring or um, climbing mountains or doing crazy stuff, he's um, either speaking at events, teaching, um, or enjoying his local outdoors. Um, he lives in Dartmoor. Uh, with his wife and kids and enjoys playing rugby for his local team and i very rudely suggested it was his vets team and he's corrected me he's in the first team not the vets team just just in the first team when they're when they're really short (laughs) just about in the first team Um, so I thought with James's extensive experience of expeditions and particularly expedition leadership, um, and he's done some research around this too, that we're going to get into on the podcast. Um, I thought you're in a really unique position to talk about, um, expedition leadership and how that fits into the job of being an expedition medic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. Great. So, um, I can see you coming to us from, uh, sunny Devon outside in the garden and, uh, Let's, without further ado, let's let's get into it. So um, was there anything that you wanted to add to your bio? Because I think that maybe is a little bit about date now. Like, what are you up to recently? Uh, not, well, not much more to add, I suppose. Uh, what I've been up to recently, uh, back into adventure tourism for a little bit, I suppose. That's that's fairly, you know, I did, I've done a considerable amount of adventure tourism work, uh, mainly mountains, um, but uh, had a couple of years where I was away from that and come back to it this year. So, yeah, so hence... You know, Nepal in a few weeks. In fact, I'm there for most of the season. I've got a couple of back-to-back trips, uh, which I'm gearing up for, a few recce's before that. So, yeah, it's um, pretty pretty up-to-date. Great, fantastic. Um, So we've talked a little bit about your previous expeditions. Um, So 
and you've met could you just give us maybe like a, a brief kind of overview of your of your 20 year career please just condense that into a few <laughs> paragraphs for us <laughs> 20 year career yeah yeah it's been 20 years. so uh yeah um i suppose i sort of fell into expeditions um by default by meeting the right people at the right time in your life um i originally started off actually uh working in stunts um for tv film and, and theater mainly theater at the time uh, in my sort of uh, early 20s um but took a sideways turn uh, ended up working with young people uh outdoor sort of learning uh, a bit of cadet and all sorts of stuff there's not much opportunity in south london to to, to get be adventurous but i've always i suppose reflectively looked back and thought maybe that was what i was sort of destined to end up doing um uh, so cadet through cadets and, and things like that got me the initial experience um but uh, it wasn't until I was in my in my twenties that I met met somebody who was a British mountain guide uh, while I was doing a course to work on Duke of Edinburgh uh, expeditions, and then sort of from that uh, he was generous enough, I suppose, um, to, to to mentor me quite a lot into into it. And I've always had this dream of expeditions. So yeah, so I was lucky again, lucky to the time when the commercial youth expedition sector sort of took off. Uh, to get involved in leading quite early on uh, on on overseas expeditions, a little bit sketchier than they are now, I suppose. Uh, back then, um, you know, given a copy of the Lonely Planet, a couple of hundred dollars, and a and a load of dehydrated rations, and sent off to somewhere in the world, generally developing countries, um, to uh, to lead a group of young people from a, from a school group or what have you. Um, so if you had bad days, it's a little bit more itinerized uh, on some of those trips. Um, but yeah, so that's how I sort of started out and then used that as a jumping off point to, to achieve other things within that space. Adventure um, tourism I already mentioned. Um, and then from that, building qualifications, building experience, meeting people, um, managed to get onto sort of bigger expeditions, research expeditions and doing logistics. In the early days, again, doing like, because I had sort of, I was the only one with a first aid qualification, ended up being the medic on quite a lot before we started realising that actually we might need doctors uh, on expeditions. So I did quite a lot of medicking uh, on expeditions, first aid medicking uh, on expeditions and building med kits and, and things for it and delivering training. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then that was that's been my consistent work, really, um, for, for a large number of years, alongside all the other things you have to do, because expedition leadership isn't really a career, I suppose. Uh, it's a it's a life journey. I I imagine it, like ninety percent of my time I don't spend leading expeditions. I spend doing other things. So I become a personal trainer, and I become a trainer of first aid courses, and um, uh, lecture at university, and 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 you know, and all the stuff as you build. Uh, I suppose um, alongside that, worked a lot in TV and film safety. So a bit of a three hundred and sixty background. Now I sign off stunts uh, for TV and film and uh, and things, and um, do a lot of consultancy. Uh, leadership development training as my life has, has developed as well so alongside this expedition career uh, and i suppose it's a bit like some of the medics so you have you have your your professional career but you also have a side career of, of the lead expedition um medicine and leadership and uh, yeah absolutely so it's been a bit like, yeah, it's a bit of a portfolio a like isn't it you've got yeah the tip of the iceberg is the is the fun bit and you know they're going on expeditions etc and then you've got a whole load of other activities that kind of support that and prop it up um I yeah. think we're going to go on to it kind of leads into nicely and i know this is going to be your mantras but um about competence um so you've got to maintain <laughs> your competence in other ways um so yeah uh 
it's, it's a whole load of sort of background work that goes into making you a competent. Uh, yeah. Cred- and all those things also, they all make you better at doing the expedition stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they all, they build into it. So becoming a personal trainer, for example, uh, as an, just an example that I did in my, in my, in my late twenties, early thirties, becoming a personal trainer. Well, I train people to go on expedition. It, it, and then you, then you see people when you're on the hill and, you know, you're out there and, and you're, you're talking to them about their training or you're developing their next lot of training for to help with them and or train them to go on expedition. Uh, oh, yeah, or you definitely. have a better understanding of physiology or anatomy or what have you. And then, you know, it, it all feeds in. So, yeah, it, I, I think that's the that links to some of the stuff around integration of skill that we might talk about and get into in a minute. Yeah, definitely. And it goes both ways, doesn't it? That the skills you gain on expedition can go back into feeding uh, feeding the other aspects of your sort of portfolio career as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's like weirdly doing portfolio careers before portfolio careers were a thing. Yes, yeah, and many expedition <laughs> leaders have to, don't they? Because it's like you said, you yeah. can't make a living out of just expedition leadership. You've got to do some other stuff as well. Um, yeah. So, okay, talking about leadership uh, and sort of, uh, you've sidestepped into leadership development, I think, as well. And you do quite a lot of sort of educating and teaching on courses and things around this. Um, yeah. You've done your, you did your bachelor's in outdoor leadership and now you've finished your master's looking at leadership behavior. Um, do you want to talk us through a little bit of the key concepts from your master's? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, oddly enough, I left school with like no qualifications at all. Um, well, in fact, actually school told me I had to leave. Um, so, um, uh, so, yeah, so starting from that background, I didn't actually do my degree until I was in my 30s. Um, and then I did my master's, well, they actually bought it, finished it in my 40s, and then um, uh, did my master's a couple of years, last, finished last year. Um, uh, so it was a research master's. Um, and, and what I sort of looked at, I suppose, was um, the difference between, or the comparative study between uh, behaviors of novice expedition leaders and, uh, and experienced expedition leaders, setting the sort of arbitrary benchmark of what made a, 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 a novice and what made an experienced expedition leader because obviously you have to have some experience before you can not obviously i suppose but you have to it's useful to have some experience of, of, of expeditions before you step into a leadership role and if we look at the uk outdoor qualification structure for example you know most of the qualifications mountain leader hill and moorland leader the climbing awards you need to have some experience to be able to contextualize the learning that you then do and then more experience to then go for assessment. So it's that, you know, you, so you need someone to be set the, I set the sort of a level of, of personal experience and leadership experience at novice and then the same for experienced um, uh, people. And what I was really intrigued by was trying to look at the, uh, the behaviors, the differences between the behaviors along the, along the line of the concept of if we can understand the behaviours that are exhibited or the themes that are exhibited by experienced expedition leaders, maybe that can help us influence training that might be delivered. But there are no formal qualifications to become an expedition leader. And actually, one of the nice things about meeting expedition leaders, um, and I knew you'll get this, I hope you remember this from, from UConn, is the diversity of a leadership team, particularly on a British exploring expedition where you may have 20 leaders on it because they're big expeditions. The, the real diversity is actually one of the strengths. Everyone comes in from different backgrounds. You know, if you just have a whole load of outdoor instructors that live in North Wales and go send them on expedition, they're pretty much carbon copies of the same thing to a certain extent. I know it's not dissing any of the any of those people that do that, but you know, but a broader diversity of people with different skills adds adds to that. So, uh, um, 
So there's no yeah, that, clear way to become an expedition leader, basically, is that you get a whole yeah, range no of people from different backgrounds. Yeah. So looking at yeah, the behaviours... Sorry, yeah. So yeah, looking at the looking at those behaviours, see if we can think about wh where we can improve training um, or develop training at a novice level or throughout someone's expeditionary career, if that's what they want to do, regardless of what role they may play on an expedition, from logistics through to medics, etc. So what are the what are the the themes? And so the, the masters identified six themes, albeit that three of them fit into a, into another area that I'll, I'll, I'll discuss in a second. So you could almost lump them into one. The overriding thing, uh, and those those were um, uh, the diversity of skill that that people have, that, that you know, um, that they develop, how they develop skill, so skill acquisition, uh, experience. Oddly enough, became a, was a theme that that made a difference. So the, the actual um, reflectiveness on experience, uh, decision making uh, as a particular skill growth mindset which was actually a real surprise like the, the actual um was a surprise theme and the other surprise theme that came out of it was around the influence of role models on uh, on on people's journey between every single person i interviewed mentioned somebody who had either inspired them uh, gave them a kick said i think you'll be good at this or or actually stayed as a mentor right? and i can relate to that totally um from the mentors that i've been lucky enough to to have over the years um and hopefully have been a mentor to others as well through some of the I'm work sure that I've you done have. yeah expedition leaders um, or due to, you know, younger expedition leaders or less experienced um so role models was an absolute um was an was a, was a bit of a, a bit of a side thing but the growth mindset was also uh, every every single person novice and experienced demonstrated um the the key characteristics of growth mindset um you know life is tough but it can be good you know you can get through things a positive mindset to the way they approach stuff a growth mindset in terms of their learning and development lots of the novices knew they were on a pathway to experience and were, were actually actively seek, seeking that as well so as well as the the experienced leaders also knew they weren't the finished object they were also looking for the, the next thing the more learning the you know whether it was learning a language or learning a um, some so going on a different medical course or whatever to upskill themselves. There was a there was a clear evidence of growth mindset within that community. Um, so so they're the six themes. The three first themes: skill acquisition, skill diversity, and um, and experience uh, come under what what, it, what we I refer to as polymathic leadership. Uh, and and this is a concept that has it's fairly recent within leadership development. Um, Theory. It's been sort of coined in the last few years, uh, particularly by a Brazilian um, academic um, called Akari. Akari? Akari. Um, and the concept being is that um, uh, leader, leaders need to be polymaths. So they need to be sort of like the jack of all trades sort of thing um, and, and have a depth. And they identify that they have to have a depth and a breadth of experience. So a breadth, breadth of experience, uh, sorry, experience and knowledge. Um, so if we break down the term polymathy, poly mean many, ma is the Greek word for um, a block of knowledge or a unit of knowledge. So the idea of many units of knowledge uh, and what the, the sort of the academics in that field are, are talking about at the moment is that you have a breadth of knowledge in a whole load, load of lots of, lots of domains and you have a depth of knowledge 
in each of those, or you build a depth of knowledge in each of those domains. But actually, more importantly, is how you integrate those things. So going back to um, what I said earlier, um, finding the links from your knowledge, different branches of your knowledge, and how that then influences you as a leader. Um, so that then builds in as you build your experience alongside that. So um, I've, I've sort of lumped in, in post master's thinking, I've sort of lumped those three into this concept around polymathic leadership, though they're probably all involved in, in the development of, uh, of polymathic leaders. So therefore, how do we make leaders integrate their breadth and depth of experience and knowledge? And I, I think that concept will resonate quite a lot with people who are in the outdoor industry or in medicine in general, um, that it kind of fits with your anecdotal experience that leaders who are good um, are generally people who've come from a really interesting background and they've done a lot of different things, they've had a lot of different experiences and they somehow managed to bring all that learning and that experience and use it to now shape their current behavior and their current leadership role. Um, mm. And I think that, that that really does, that I can think of many people that I've worked with, um, yourself included, started off as a stunt man, <laughs> who's brought all of that, you know, brought all of that experience together to, to make yourself a better leader for it as well. Yeah, and if we can identify that for people in their novice area, so that, that you know, early career, let's call it early career rather than novice, I suppose is probably a better, terminology if we can help their those people identify that that their you know their levels of knowledge their domains you know, of knowledge um and and then help them curate their career their career journey you know or their learning journey from that their development journey and help them learn to integrate or find the ways to integrate then potentially they could be exhibiting behaviors of experienced leaders earlier on in their career they may not have the experience but they've got the they, they're building that polymathic approach to leadership by actually actively going out and seeking new new knowledge building knowledge finding the links between it and i said like you know from you know, i know tons about anatomy and physiology in a, from a performance basis as a personal trainer but i can absolutely stick into my expedition leadership when i'm trekking with a group and someone's having problems with their hips or having an injury or trying to you know, to identify, you know, diagnose a problem that may not just be medical, it may be more physiological or anatomical because of my experience as a personal trainer or, or um, time spent, you know, I've, I've been in the reserve forces and uh, as well um, and, you know, time spent there learning leadership because I haven't done any leadership training in my civilian career as such, um, but I have done in the military. So therefore I can bring it, bring that across into my, in, into my practice as a, as yeah, a leader. So that's a really interesting idea that you could almost have like a leadership uh, curriculum or skill set or, or something like that where you would say, okay, so you're really strong in terms of your like interpersonal skills or your kind of like people management skills, uh, but you're lacking a little bit in terms of um, maybe your, I don't know, navigation or, or decision making or, or so, some other area and at a fairly junior level of expedition leadership if you could identify those weaknesses and sort of in terms of your your skill base of leadership you could then build upon them and hopefully start exhibiting mm. behaviors of a much more experienced leader that maybe has taken a few years to to learn that yeah and and actually you then approach your your experience as developmental you know, what I mean, you're going to have to have epics at some point and you're going to have to test yourself and you, and those things are going to have to happen. But 
approaching it with that broader growth mindset with a you know with a broader uh, look at it with an understanding that this is all part of that journey absolutely um i you know, there's obviously the elements around technical skills and non-technical skills. Um, there's been a brilliant paper recently by James Thacker, um, the, the mountain guide around mountain um, mountain guides, uh, non-development and non-technical skills, um, which is really interesting. And uh, I think I that, think we've had him on the podcast before, James. Yeah, I think yeah. I think you have actually. I think I listened to it, but I've read his paper actually. I read it last week um, while I was in on holiday um in france and, and and i read it and it just you know it rings there's there's some commonality in some of that around the non-technical skills stuff i would hate to put benchmarks on things i think there's too much tr too too much is put on benchmarks not badly but there's too much like, like i meet a lot of people who say uh, i want to be an expedition leader so i'm going to go get my uh, ml okay do you go climbing do you go in hill walking oh no 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 but i've been told i need to have my ml and i'm like mm, do you though you know, so, I know so a lot of companies to... will ask for it as a as a minimum. Yeah. So therefore, we we've put we put an award at a level, and I get I get it, I get why, and I've been on the other side of the fence. I've been on been in the, uh, in operations, and I've you know for for expedition companies, and you know sometimes you need a benchmark where someone has been assessed externally to allow you to have that you know currency, you know, and and the competence uh, has been developed has been identified. So I'm not completely poo pooing it. But I just think we need to be very careful about putting benchmarks on things. Yeah, there's a place for it, isn't there? But um, yeah, yeah. but it shouldn't be the be or end all. And actually, interestingly, a lot of medical training is going that way as well in terms of we used to be a lot about benchmarking and saying, you know, you have to have done this procedure 50 times before you're considered competent mm. at it. And now it's much more leaning towards... Um, OK, maybe you might be competent at this procedure after 10 um attempts uh, but you have to be able to prove and demonstrate that competency which yeah. it actually makes it very difficult from a um a sort of training perspective because it was nice to have a number to try and hit when you're like right i get 50 and then i'm signed off and i'm good to go on this uh, but now it's like a lot more fluid and a bit more vague as a result um but there has to be some sort I've of seen, common... i've seen it with yeah there sorry i've seen it with like the, the ml across across like you know if you say ml then everyone knows mm. that you are of a certain standard but yeah. that doesn't necessarily translate to your performance and your experience level does it yeah or we have to use it in conjunction with the rest of your apprenticeship and don't get me wrong when an apprenticeship is not an apprenticeship to get signed off it's that life journey it's almost and going back to your point earlier around you know identifying where people might be it's enabling it's a bit of a mixture isn't it and this is maybe where role models come into it where they're able to just work with somebody to to mentor them through to identify where their areas of development might be and enable them to have plans to then build that that competence or or that um, yeah. block of knowledge um, and whether that is technical or non-technical is going to be identified individually between different people um, because again yeah. I've seen it the same seen it with the ML where people are like yeah, yeah I've got I need to get my 40 days I need to get my 40 days I need to get my 40 days before I go for assessment and it's like, just because you don't suddenly tip over 40 days and suddenly become a competent leader. You know, it, it's, a, it's an arbitrary number, but it's a number that's been set just to try and allow people, it's been set as a minimum. It was never set as you have to hit it to then get you, go for assessment. It was a minimum requirement. And actually, I wonder how many people, and I know there's been some studies by MLT UK around, um, you know, why people pass and fail MLs. Mm. I think it's an article in the current edition of, Professional Mountaineer magazine uh, by Nigel Williams, where he looks at what it, what are the reasons people fail, 
mm. or get deferred, sorry, rather than fail for, for on, on their on their mountain leading qualifications or awards. Um, and um, uh, you know, I, I would wonder how much of that would be people who are going for it bare minimum. You know, yeah, um, absolutely. They see a number, but, they've got a target, and then yeah. they try and hit that target rather than yeah. um, thinking, "Are you actually sort of ready or competent to go for the assessment?" Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, it's yeah. Anyway, and no, I, I think, think individual development planning would be yes, the, the definitely. Way. And if that but that feeds into the role model uh, situation, like you were saying, if you've got a role model that says mm. like actually, um, you need to really work on you know this section of your of your leadership uh, polymathy. I hope I said that right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then um, that's really helpful, isn't it? It's really helpful to have an external, uh, perhaps more experienced person who's who's looking at you and saying, yeah, this is the area that you need to develop. Um, yeah, and that could be formal or informal. I think like it doesn't have to be formal, but it could be informal, couldn't it? You could role models can be formal or informal. They could just be someone you shoot the breeze with, definitely. Um, who, you know, who, who just to bounce off ideas to be reflective to get a get a different opinion. Uh, and again, just to, to bring them back, like to my world, we get assigned uh, supervisors, and those supervisors mm -hmm. are not necessarily people who uh, align with your uh with with your trajectory with your career aspirations uh they don't necessarily understand your particular perspective um and it's a kind of arbitrary process of like you know you get this person you get this person um whereas i think a much more useful and, and empowering way of doing role modeling is is to actually choose your own role model and be like actually okay you i really like you i want to be like you how do i get there um, you're going to be my role model. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And they don't even have to know it sometimes. I, I, no. In fact, I, told, I, was, talking, I was looking on a, a leadership program earlier on this week with some grads uh, for, a, for a big company. And um, I was talking to one of the lads, sort of downtime, and we're talking about role models. Uh, and I said, I remember when I joined the Air Cadets, um, the, the warrant officer um, said, pick pick your, pick your somebody who's, above you, like, who's older than you, above you. So I'm like 13 at the time. Um, pick someone who's older than you or, or in, a, in the rank that you want to aspire to be like and, and work out what it is about them that you, that you do. So I picked this this guy, um, you know, we've known each other now, what, 30 odd years. Um, and he was a couple of years older than me at school and he was smart. He, his boots were polished. He was absolutely smart. Even after he'd like been on camp for weeks and or a week or whatever, and he was still smart. And I'm rushing around like a blue-eyed fly, blue fly trying to, to wash my boots, get them polished, to be as smart as him, and and things. And then, you know, three or four years later, you're in that position, and you know. But he never knew that he was my role model at that point. He was just somebody that I aspire to be like, because he was, he was, you know, he was awesome. You know, yeah. uh, when I was yeah. thirteen, he was probably what sixteen. Uh, you know, in the sixth form at school, or whatever, or fifth year, or whatever. Um, it's only a couple of yeah. years older than me, but, but I suppose that role models don't have to be formal. Because you were talking about, um, obviously, he was only a few years older than you. And um, I think there's um, there's a potential pitfall to fall into that if you pick somebody who's so much more experienced than you, who's 20 or 30 years ahead of their in their career, um, that perhaps it's not as relatable. I don't know. If, did that mm. come out in your thesis at all? Uh, no, it didn't. Because um, I was saying that was a surprise theme. So I didn't identify that theme until I was into the thematic analysis. Uh, and, and it was like, whoa, every single person mentioned this thing. Like when I was going through the transcripts, when I was re-listening to the interviews, 
uh, or re-watching the interviews because most of them were on Zoom because it was during COVID. Um, and uh, it, it popped out and it was like, but, but you can't mistake the fact that every single person's mentioned it. Every person in the study mentioned it. Um, and then it related, obviously I related to it because of having had, had some thinking around that myself and, and having had a mentor early on in my career. Um, you know, and I definitely, it, it's an area that I'd like to look at. So as part of this next phase, I suppose, of looking at these things, role models would be something that I'd like to look into a little bit more. Yeah, um, and yeah. the power and, and the importance of them uh, within the people's leadership journey. And like you said, formal, informal, are they sort of overtly identified as your role model or are they not? Does it matter? Does Yeah, yeah it, it's a really interesting concept to look into. So, yeah. There's I a lovely exercise you... you can do to identify your values that I've worked, I've done, I've, you know, beggars borrow, geniuses plagiarise, as Oscar Wilde said, uh, I've borrowed from somewhere else. Uh, and it's like an exercise where you where you look at people in your life that are important uh, to you that you aspire to be like and and it could be from literature they could be film they, you know they could be uh, you know, like a film character or, or something like that like, as well as real life people and you list them all down and then you list out what they're what they you know why you like them and mm. then you try to identify your values from that and you know James Bond was on mine and Steve Irwin was on mine and you know and other people you know and some real life people as well well obviously Bowen is a real life person obviously but you know um yeah so there's some sort of characters maybe some actors that were, that mm -hmm. were from movies that you go, oh yeah i wish i was a bit like them and i was quite like them and you know, kiana reeves or whatever and uh, and stuff and, and you, you know and in some ways that's that's you doing that same exercise where you're picking out people you know role model i remember years ago i used to i got very into reading biographies at one point when i was trying to find my own character like who i was so I read a lot of biographies of different people from all sorts of walks of life from the Shackletons to the um, you know to Steve McQueen or what have you you know it, yeah it, just to get perspective on it and they can still be your role models they still help you find it you just yeah formal and informal I'd like to I'd like to do more work on that I think I, I think as well like thinking about who I look up to and emulate it's not actually one person I think it's probably multiple people that I admire mm. for different reasons um and, and I don't think you need to just yeah pick the one person, but also you can pick out the good traits from quite a few different people. And you, I guess I guess your role model doesn't necessarily have to be you know completely perfect. There might be some things that you don't like about them, or that you're like, oh, I could do that a bit differently. Um, and I'm going to pull this from this other person that oh they do it this way, mm. and I quite like that way, so I'm going to do it that way as well. Um, so yeah, kind yeah. of pulling pulling all your favourite things from various people that you emulate i wonder if that's uh yeah then there's an element of awareness there being aware of that you're doing that as well you know like being aware that you are you are looking for those things or you're you're trying to you know you, you, that you've learned something so that that thing comes back to the reflective practice definitely and reflection and also i find uh people don't respond well if you sort of aggressively tell them that they are your role model and now you're going to watch them and do everything they do and to, people don't like that generally so uh, i try to be a little bit yeah. more subtle nowadays <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> so that was the kind of the the, the, the skills and an exper experiential bit of your thesis and then the the second part was um around the sort of decision making and growth mindset was that right yeah, so the other three were decision making. Um, so how people make decisions in in, um, in high tempo environments and the patterns. So uh, there's some classic um, research that's been been already been done in in this area, um, both from a um, a general perspective, but also from an outdoor leadership perspective. So um, 
uh, thinking fast and slow, which we, we were talking about prior to, to, to this, you know, the idea that the novice novices generally, and these are gen make decisions where they refer back when they have a decision to make, they refer back to past training events or process SOPs, flow diagrams, checklists, that sort of that that sort of stuff. Um, whereas more experienced individuals or operatives will uh, will do a little bit of um, uh, they'll be they'll be able to see the situation and refer it back to maybe previous experience or how things have worked on previous decisions because they have the the, the experience to do so. Uh, but also they exhibit um, uh, behaviours where they intuit the um an answer they feel it in their gut or or, or or you know when you listen when you talk to experienced decision makers they talk oh yeah i felt it uh, rather than thinking in some ways they they, they sort of connect the, uh, the the two and they feel whether it's going to be a bad decision or they can go well we tried this before and this other situation didn't work let's try something else uh, but also there's a there's a, a flexibility and agility within experienced decision making where um uh, which is probably around things like situational awareness, um, being more situationally aware, or um, or being able to recognise when there is a decision that needs to be made, or uh, or where they can delay a decision to get more information. So, mm. uh, so they either need to make a decision because doing something is better than doing nothing, um, and 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 pausing might cause the problem to to get worse. So they, they, they can recognise when that when that is, and they can they can make that decision quicker. Uh, though, if they recognise where they have a chance to make to have more time to garner more resources or more information, or even uh, as one of the my research participants talked about, you know, gain input from other people into that decision making process, then they they recognise quicker that. So there, there's some clear stuff there around. Um, for expedition leaders and medics and, and, and other, other areas where we're working in, in high tempo environments um, where it, it's, it's, you know, can we, if we know this, this is how experienced people work, is there ways that we can develop training or um, some tools or some models that can, can be, can be devised to enable more novice practitioners the chance to develop those, those traits earlier on. So does that, does that come into, more immersive training for example scenario like the classic would be if you put people in a high tempo immersive training environment um where they and and, and they have to make lots of decisions are we helping them inculcate some of those traits you know especially if we maybe give them some tools to to do that so that that's sort of an area that we're I'm currently looking at i suppose and and there's lots of other people but um, so you're looking at taking one. the novice decision maker and maybe giving them some tools um, to help push them down a more experienced decision maker's thought process. Is that summarize yeah. it a bit? Is that something that we can do? You know, yeah. So before they build the experience from from hardcore experience, can we develop that experience? Because we we all we know that crucible experiences in people's development remain with them. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of evidence to say that yeah, if you've been in a high tempo or not even high tempo, but an experience that sears itself into your memory, you're going to remember that experience. So that could be the heart, the, the actual epic that you might be having, or it could be, could it be something that we could develop in training? Now, that's not to say that we've got to take people to the edge of the cliff and into misadventure, 
um, just to get them to, to have that experience. But can we do, can we deliver high fidelity, immersive experience training scenario, for example, alongside some theoretical tools that enable people to, to start modeling some of those behaviors of, with which we might associate with more experienced yeah absolutely and in yeah. the medical sphere of things this this absolutely resonates with um like we do a lot of simulation training which mm -hmm. is exactly what you're talking about like an immersive scenario where we're trying to elicit the same sort of like adrenaline response we're trying to make it a little bit of a stressful situation um that will hopefully uh form that decision making process in your head but where you're not going to put anybody at harm um so yeah, yeah. you hopefully have a sort of mini crucible experience but not i yeah. i still think there's a lot of work to be done where it doesn't quite emulate when you do have a proper epic or a, a yeah proper sort of disaster to case totally agree i don't think we're ever gonna yeah we're never gonna get away from from that but if if, if the immersive experience is combined with some tools maybe that's the thing they remember when they have the epic if you see what yeah. i mean like that that becomes the that becomes the the the, the method they then utilize but it enables them to to, to replicate the dead i don't know it's a theoretical concept isn't it but it, it, at the moment we're, we're, i'm doing some been doing some research this summer um uh, looking at this like providing tools trying to look at some tools see whether they work in different environments um uh, and enhance trying to enhance situational awareness i think that's a that's a really key area um and maybe actually it's not about decision making at all or maybe it is about the situational awareness or the the process as a, you know, we don't know i don't know but it's it definitely decision making featured heavily in that in in the in the masters in regards to the difference you know there was a difference there, there was a difference in the way that the, the novice leaders and experienced leaders spoke about decision making and about how they how they they made decisions um and in fact it was also quite contextual as well uh, there's there's some outliers within the research um, of people who've done expeditions of a very similar ilk um and don't have a di they may, may may have come under my experienced pile uh, of leaders um so with lots of expeditionary experience and leading experience but they're all of a very similar nature um who exhibited behaviors that novices were associated to novice behavior because they their content their, their experience was of one one type of expedition as opposed to others who had a broader range of expeditionary mm. experience as well so there's some stuff in there around the experience uh, bit that that also plays a role i think as well um and, and, and there, there, there is an element there of risk i suppose sorry Oh, so I was just going to say, you mentioned about you know, the bit of research you've been doing this summer. Um, I believe that's around the space analog missions, is it? Yeah, we we're lucky uh, lucky enough to be um, invited to apply to do a research project um, as part of space health research analog space mission that occurred this summer. Um, they've just come back. It's been a second UK-led um, analog space mission. Uh, and we we myself and and dr Lowell collins um were able to get involved in a a project where uh, to test the tool um in regards to decision making Lowell, Lowell collins has done lots of work around um, adventure sports coaches and decision making of, of elite and high level and novice um uh, expedition uh, uh, adventure sports coaches predominantly uh, within um uh, within paddle sports 
which again is again a, a high tempo, very quick, dynamic activity where where high level coaching needs to make decisions, you know, based on the people they've got, the environment that they're in, and the activities they're undertaking. So all of which are sort of hyper dynamic. Um, mm. So we're lucky enough to be able to do that. Obviously, uh, we they've just finished the mission, um, and we're just about to launch into some some research interviews on the back of some of the stuff they've been doing. So early days, but testing some tools, looking at situational awareness. Because again, high tempo environment, high risk, high reward environments. Um, it, 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 there's possibly some cross crossover and some um, some stuff that and might come out of this that could be interesting. What sort of uh, tools are you looking at? What what sort of things are you using? Uh, so looking at sort of the way that people a um, uh, assess the situation, so the situational awareness, uh, and secondly, looking at how they reflect on. Um, their decision-making process. So, looking at some sort of uh, looking at reflective tools to enable them to ref to reflect deeper on their decision-making, which therefore makes them think about how they make decisions. Yeah, so sort of accelerating that learning process a little yeah. bit through the use of yeah. like a reflective tool, and, and also the use of, of a highly immersive, high you know experience that they've been involved in you know in, a, in terms of being an analog space mission with a with a you know obviously there's no major risk on a on an analog mission but the, the the perceived risk of an analog you know if you put that analog mission to where it's supposed to be you know decision making you know in space when things maybe go wrong or don't go as planned that's high high risk um high tempo environment and so therefore it's it's possibly a useful environment to utilize to enable us to draw some lessons yeah, for other, other environments, humanitarian, medical, expedition um, ways. And that's just me, I'm just trying to fight by working this, each of these little areas to try and see if there's another ways we can draw some of that. But understand it better i think understand there's each so many parallels better. i think between all these different areas and you've just reminded me there was a there was a guy who was involved with wem called luca carenzo i think he still teaches on some of the courses but he did um he did a research project looking at uh it was taking astronauts who were going to go into space so i think it was a european space agency and then put them in a cave system uh, and had them go caving essentially uh, to develop their non-technical skills. Um, so they were all mm -hmm. of a similar sort of knowledge base and experience ex experience base, um, but put them into a completely unfamiliar environment, quite disorientating. It's cold, it's dark. None of them had any prior experience of caving in order to kind of help them help level the playing field and then develop their their non-technical skills within that environment that yeah. was then going to sort of contribute to hopefully success on a on a space mission so it's really interesting to see how the out, yeah. outdoor environment crosses over with um medical environments and also the sort of non-technical leadership skills and, and and how how do we use that various environments to teach that and other other analog space missions you know go to antarctica and there's a long-term project in antarctica um looking at it, there's a long-term project i think in the middle of death valley or somewhere like that um as well like very harsh environments where the risk is 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 increased mm. um in regards to how how might we live in space or how you know what what would what could happen in, in space we saw that with the apollo 13 mission i think it's apollo 13 wasn't it they made the tom hanks film um where you know, where they where things were going wrong in space and they had to make decisions and i think it's used a lot in leadership development training now and um in regards to the sort of you know, communication and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, leadership and, and decision making they had to do 
but that's where the you know, you, things go wrong and you've got no oxygen. <laughs> like that's, yeah, that's high pretty stakes, serious. Whereas, yeah, pretty high stakes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. High stakes, high risk. Um, so yeah, a good environment potentially to, to test some of the, particularly around decision making. I think that was a good environment to try and look at, which is, and so very lucky to be invited to, to, to apply to, to do the research on that. Uh, so I'm really excited to, to start doing the interviews. Yeah, um, cool. We'll, we'll keep an eye out for that and um, yeah, yeah, look forward to seeing what the results of that are. Um, so moving a little bit to, and we touched on this earlier, uh, one of your key mantras, and anybody who's worked with James and has has, has probably heard this before. Um, so uh, the three C's, uh, competence, currency, and credibility, uh, core concepts of leadership that um, I've heard you speak about many times before, but I wonder if you could expand upon that and um, how it fits into a sort of outdoor leadership model for us. Yeah, I, I think, so uh, it's quite, it's, it's a simple, it's a simple sort of mantra. And I, yeah, I've used it on the leadership training courses and development. I think it's applicable across uh, a whole range of things but you know if we think about current uh, competency currency and credibility um as three key areas to look at if we're looking to develop ourselves or looking to develop into into careers and, and into um leadership roles you know competence is your ability to do the job that, that's pretty much what it says on the tin um and in fact actually competence i think if i remember rightly competence in the dictionary says to be good at something i think that's it i think that's the only description in the miriam webster dictionary of, of competence um but we can infer from that like that, that actually so yes it's about being being good at something or being good at many things if we're looking at polymathy um or being skilled in many things uh, but also there is those tick-offs like having a qualification like having some certification like your ongoing cpd to a certain extent um is your ability to be able to do the thing that you're, you want to do um or that you're being pay to or you're going on so the competency in, a, in an outdoor leadership perspective is are you competent from a non-technical basis are you competent from a technical basis or the other around are you competent technically um you know if you're going to be doing ropes are you competent on ropes how do you measure competency competency can be measured three ways it could be by certification it can be um uh, by going on a training course and being signed off by somebody uh, to, to do it um uh, or it can be um, through through competence through experience, demonstrable experience or logged experience. So there's three ways that you can measure competency. That's taken from British Standard 884 for overseas expeditions. It's clearly stated in there. Uh, and um, you know that's if we yeah therefore all those things that polymathic you, 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 sorry your breadth of, ex, of knowledge and experience you know helps build that competency your your demonstrable competency. So can you do the thing that is that you're doing and are you skilled in it um, as well? Uh, currency is how, how current are you? And, and this goes, this in some ways goes back to um, many years ago, I was, I, I, I ran an outdoor program in a, uh, in Tower Hamlets in East London. So it was an outdoor education um, facility project that worked for the local authority. Um, we built an outdoor center. It's still there in the middle of Mile End Park in East London, uh, still delivering to, uh, one of the most disadvantaged boroughs in, in the country. Uh, and I worked there for, for three or four years as the head of outdoor, outdoor um, education. Um, and I remember arriving on the first day and, and one, of the, one of the gentlemen who I was taking over because it was a transfer from the local authority centre uh, or project. And uh, he had an ML, uh, but he hadn't actually got anything in his logbook for 10 years. 
So he hadn't been climbing in the mountains, hadn't done anything mountaineering wise for, you know, in principle on paper in within 10, uh, over 10 years. And um, so it was a case of going, well, actually, like, I can't deploy you as a, as an ML, as a, to lead groups in the hills because you don't have any currency. Like you haven't been in the hills for t as far as this is concerned for 10 years. So if you go in the hills for a few, you know, get, get in the hills and have a, have a get you, get some experience up the updates your experience, then we can start thinking about deploying you in that role. So even though he had the ticket, he had the stamp, I, you know, he, he wasn't current at that time. He did l l become current and we're able to deploy him. But so currency is your, is, is your, you know, are you personally experienced? There's a lot of people out there, I think, who lead and lead and lead and lead, but maybe don't do as much personal stuff. Um, so you've got to, you know, you've got to have that, that currency and stay current. So trying to fit in some personal expeditions every year or some personal goals um, as well. And also there's an element of, uh, you know, if you're working at this level, maybe you should be playing at this level. You know, and the simple way of looking at that is if you're a summer mountain leader, maybe you should be personally going into Scotland in the winter and having, you know, having your epics. And so, you know, where, you know, you know, you know where your, your level of competence is, you know, where your, where your line is. Um, and I know we're talking a lot there about ML, but it's the same applies to uh, expeditions medics it applies across definitely yeah so, definitely yeah and, yeah and are you attending regular cpd uh, i know there's no requirement within a lot of the uk outdoor qualifications to have regular cpd but i think it's become culturally acceptable to to, to do cpd uh, whether that's webinars or, or listening to podcasts i think you know i've been involved in the freck scheme in terms of doing the medic um uh, doing the qualifications and in between each level you have to go and demonstrate cpd you have to keep a log i keep a spreadsheet of when i listen to a podcast and there's an hour what did i learn from it you know be reflective did i teach a first aid course okay what did i learn from that course etc so that's still demonstrable uh, currency mm -hmm. um as well so i think it could be about reading papers it could be um watching youtube videos etc you know uh, I'm, I'm in the himalayas in in the next month or so um and you know i haven't done any I've done the. Um, I haven't walked on a glacier with a with a group for, a, you know, two years. I think probably the last time I was on a glacier roping up groups. So I'm I'm been playing with the ropes in the garage, you know, looking at YouTube videos, reminding myself uh, about it. You know, I think I'm competent in it. I've done it a lot, but I'm not current because I haven't done it for two years. So mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, you know just re re putting re putting those things in um, to keep myself current, uh, and and credibility is. The, the, the credibility is is ha all the other things really like how credible are you um yeah your competence gives you some of that but that's not your full identity though know, your full identity isn't just because you are you're an expedition leader or you're a um or a mountain leader or whatever it is you know that's not your full that's not your credibility your credibility is actually what people buy into to a certain extent uh, um and that's about your, your way you carry yourself the way you operate um the your non-technical, I suppose, you know, interpersonal, um, intrapersonal, your um, your value set, your you know how you, how you project your leadership philosophy, how, you know how how do you, you know, what is your leadership philosophy and how do you project that? Um, but also, it is about your are you current and are you competent? So that all filters into that that credibility. So that's why I've used those to help. Um, other expedition leaders uh, and other outdoor practitioners understand, like look at their portfolio career uh, in a, in a more 
um, structured way, I suppose. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think that will be resonating and people will be sort of thinking over in their own head um, as they listen to this exactly where they sit on that kind of spectrum of competence, currency, credibility, how, where, and where, where do they need to work on? And I think what this has maybe made me think about is, so yes, in my A&E job, I'm probably competent, probably, <laughs> probably competent, uh, current, and probably credible. But as an expedition doctor, you know, if I've not done anything for 12 months, uh, I, you know, maybe I've gone to some courses, maybe I've taught on some courses, um, not, but I've not really been on an expedition for 12 months or so, or maybe I've not been to this environment before. Um, I'm going to be lacking possibly currency, possibly competence in, in a new environment. Um, I think the one thing that expedition doctors and medics should be careful of is that we almost always have credibility just because of our, the nature of our role. Mm. Um, so not to abuse that, uh, not not to abuse the fact that people generally will believe whatever we tell them because we're the doctor yeah. or we're the medic. Yeah. Yeah, and the same same apply. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And that, that's a little bit of that, uh, I suppose, dissonance, uh, cognitive dissonance that people might, because we all, we all trust the doctor, don't we? Like, we all, you know, it's who do we turn to? You know, so the same applies to expedition leaders, particularly with adventure tourism, for example, or mountain guiding, where you are being looked at as the technical expert um, and you know you you are what you say carries you know uh, yes i you know when i when i brief groups and 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 clients you know yeah if, we, if if i think you're struggling we're not gonna have an argument i'll be i'll be asking you to go down and i expect you to to go down um for example and but people will turn to you so there is an element of making sure that you understand what that relationship is with the other people and that's the inter inter and intrapersonal skills because there's a level of credibility that you need to carry into those environments as well. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think yeah, and it's probably more than just doctors. Any any sort of professional, the way that people look at professionals, yeah, we just need to be aware of that as well. Yeah, and, and you can't always blag it. You can't no. always blag it. Yeah, you can sometimes. Yeah, I know what, what what's the saying that people say like you know, um, oh, I can't remember the saying, but there's a saying in there about the budget until you get there or whatever it is. But you can't always fake it till you make it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, thank you to you, make it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't always good. do that, particularly if someone is looking at you and you know, you've got to, and, and you've got to make the call. Yeah, the, there was a story I heard um, last year about a chap who was a doctor for a Kilimanjaro expedition, and he was, I think, medically evacuated with hape uh, around about uh, just before the summit, like the base camp, kind of before the summit, and um, transpires that he'd had hape on a previous expedition to Everest Base Camp um, had failed to disclose this to anybody and um, had also been bigging up the fact that he'd been up Everest but it turned out that he'd not been up Everest he'd been up to Everest Base Camp um, wow. so there was a lot of issues there around uh, actually not really competence or currency but around credibility because mm. once you start sort of picking holes in a story and you think right well if you've had hate before then you probably shouldn't have done another altitude expedition um as the yeah. doctor because you're probably going to get it again um yeah the, the, there was a few holes in that story yeah. and you do hear those stories of people who who don't quite you know match up yeah, I think that's one thing maybe we don't concentrate on, not say concentrate on enough within outdoor leadership, um, is, is some of that stuff around who, who you are as a, you know, who you are as a leader, because there is a, you know, obviously we know there's differences and we, you know, but what if, what if I go down with, you know, I'm, I'm leading at high altitude in a couple of weeks, 
time. Um, what if I get? I, I normally do quite well at altitude. Generally, I'm not. I'm not going to, you know. Um, but I have had situations where I've, you know, where I've been. I've been quite ill uh, on expedition, and I've, you know, you, you have to admit to people that you, you know, I, it could be me that's ill. So mm-hmm. this is the process, or this is, you know, you know, let's all w- w- work together and support each other, or what have you. But there is that element of um, we don't teach humility necessarily. Um, we teach, you know, we, we the same probably occurs in in in, in medicine, you know, in, uh, and the same in other areas. We don't, you know, how how do we teach humility, or how can leaders be humble but still be leaders? I think, I think a, people think yeah. that if you're humble, it damages your credibility, but I think it's actually mm. the opposite. And probably when I was a junior doctor, I probably thought that I had to um, walk the walk, you know, and look the part, you know, do 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 the thing. Um, but now yeah. that I'm a little bit more senior, I think I, I recognise that if you actually say, I don't know, um, when somebody asks you a question, it's it's probably more powerful than if you did yeah. say oh yes of course it's this thing obviously you should have known this blah, 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 blah. you know um yeah, exactly. so yeah humility actually adds to your credibility in my opinion rather than mm. yeah and it almost takes a while to, to to learn i think for me i, I think it's taken a, probably taken you know, through the career to realize some of that stuff i i may have done some of it but not linked it to to that side because there is that element of like oh you know i'm the expedition leader i'm i'm in charge and i'm the tough guy and whatever you and people want to hear your war stories and you know, you know things like that and so you can get caught up with some of that that stuff and i think this is why again diversity of thinking personal diversity of thinking um opening your bubble up all those other things that you do that may not you may not be able to tick off on that personal development plan but uh are also featured and that's about your leadership persona and your leadership philosophy in my mind like how do you approach leadership and how do you what's your persona when you lead yeah, you know, interesting to hear you with, use the word persona because um, so a recent episode talking to my friend Francis about Kilimanjaro and he's talking about he puts on this face of happiness uh, despite suffering, <laughs> but that that's his way of motivating a team. He's like, "Come on, guys, let's do it! You know, let's sing some songs, let's get up the mountain, etc." Uh, and that's his style. Um, whereas I think my style is much more along the line of, "I'm suffering with you. We're all doing this together. Let's get through it." <laughs> Rather than him, but yeah, it is a, it is a it is a persona that you put on because you're doing a job, you're filling a role. You you have to. Um, you have to act it out a little bit sometimes to to yeah. to give you that credibility that people you know are expecting of you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and but again, that all felt you know. Again, can we can we help and develop novice novice expedition leaders, medics, etc. Or you know, I mean, I'm many expedition leaders. I'm talking about medics as well in there because we're all expedition leaders because we're in a leadership role. So you know, can we help that? people develop that that understanding you know value sets um uh um humility you know within that level of that idea of credibility you know mm. as well so i think that's that's an area that um is worth focusing on for projects for leadership development as well well that leads me nicely on to um the next question so you, you you nicely said there that the expedition medic fits into the expedition leadership team um and exactly where do you see the expedition medic within that uh leadership role and what uh what would you look for in in an expedition medic to be sort of doing in terms of uh, leading the team yeah brilliant i I, you know it's always going to depend isn't it 
Contextually, it's always going to depend. Like, so what type of expedition it is you're leading? You know, I've led lots and lots of expeditions where I'm the leader and also the medic, first aider, advanced first aider, whatever. Um, you've got the adventure tourism ones, like you mentioned Kilimanjaro, um, Everest Base Camp, where the company might place an expedition doctor alongside an expedition leader, guide to, to innate with, with the group. Or, or you have a situation where you've got a bigger expedition, maybe with base camp, British Exploring Society, for example, where there are the number of medics on the expedition. Um, or I've done a lot of work around TV and film in remote environments where there's normally a, a medic attached to the team of, of leaders and, and safety advisors, etc., to help keep a crew um, or researchers um, uh, safe from a medical perspective. So uh, it's, it's going to be... It's going to depend on each of those situations um, in terms of what, what you want. But generally, um, I think it's important that an expedition leader recognises that uh, that the medic is also an expedition leader and is not another client, even though you may have a level of responsibility for them in regards to their technical, you know, the technical side of it, because the expedition leader generally has the yay, gay, yay, nay, go, no go sort of um, uh, role. Um, but I think it's worth recognising that the medic is it, it could also be a very strong leader in their own right. Um, and so therefore, from an expedition leadership, my expedition leadership perspective would be to give the, the medic as much um, opportunity to, to demonstrate their leadership as well. Um, those expedition medics that I've worked with before, who may be listening to this, will recognise me when I say, when I meet a lot of medics, I turn around and say, I don't want you to do any medicking. I want you to be really good at digging a latrine uh, and I don't mean that in a, in, a, in, a, in a dismissive way of the medic role what it is is actually around your role is bigger than just like don't come on expedition and do some Gucci like want to do some Gucci medic, med medicine ideally we don't want to do any medicine at all and actually the way we can do that is to, is to manage health and hygiene and you know within the team I know it sounds like you've got all this qualification and competence and currency and credibility and then you're being asked really just to remind people to wash their hands that's not what it's about but it is that it is that broad thing I, you know and i don't mean to be dismissive of an expedition leader when i uh, a medic when i say that but that ultimately that's really what i'd like if that's the only job you've done on an expedition and um, you know may, may, maybe done some some good really good briefings and talks then actually we might have a successful might have been a successful expedition from a medical point of view yeah. Exactly, exactly. I'm just writing the public health talk for the next WEM course at, at the moment. And um, I think I, in my conclusion is, you know, if you've done your job right, you won't have done any medicking. Yeah. <laughs> it should all be about prevention and, you know, yeah, yeah uh, the, absolutely. getting stuck and I'm, in with I'm, the I'm other stuff. Yeah, that's the word I think I was probably missing there uh, from a medical perspective. It is all about prevention. So whether that's in your pre-work in regards to looking through the medical information, maybe contacting people with, uh, because again, we can take, I've taken people with all sorts of health conditions on expeditions to some really remote places. Um, I took a lady a few years ago with some quite significant mental health background. Um, three, uh, she'd had three hip replacements over the time. And we took her to the jungle in southern Peru and she was amazing. It was a citizen science expedition and she got really stuck in. It was hard for her, but we can, if we know the information, and we know how to manage, work with people, because ultimately that's what we do. We work with people to help them perform, yeah? And if we go for the performance equation, performance is your potential minus your interference. You know, if we can identify the interference and, and work on that, we can support a massive range of people with a whole range of health, 
physical and mental health conditions in very remote places doing some very hard or uh, fatiguing stuff if that's what their dream is or if that's what the aim of the mission is or the, uh, the expedition is we can do a lot with it if we do the pre-work and, and the, the monitoring, monitoring and, and, and you know the the um uh, the preparation definitely i think or, sometimes there can be a little bit of friction between expedition leaders and medics in terms of um risk aversion because we depending on our backgrounds obviously a and e doctors are all cowboys so we don't care but um <laughs> but um there's there is sometimes a little bit of a difference in terms of our risk appetite so some medics will be quite happy to take somebody with you know multiple comorbidities who's potentially quite a risky person to take on expedition provided that we can you know support them and put a plan in place etc um it, you know in a safe way but others will be um quite averse to doing that because they'll feel the risk is too high etc and that's where i think a little bit of friction can happen with the expedition leadership mm. team who and i think um what should be encouraged actually is is what can we do to help take this person on expedition safely rather than what reasons can we find not to take them uh, absolutely and that's uh, that's exactly what i was going to say you know i think there's differences within uh, the expertise within doctors as well and, and this is a generalization but i think a and e frontline medics have have a different risk perspective may possibly to someone who's been a gp and sometimes i find it's harder sometimes to work with gps around some of that risk aversion than it is to work with um a and e or frontline more frontline medics that that's a very general point but it's been a it's based on some experience like it's, it's not hard and fast because i've also worked with some amazing uh, gps as well um i'm not saying that even though the ones disagree with stuff aren't amazing <laughs> but that's where, where the, the discussions around risk appetite have, have come in sometimes and that's to do with the specialities and the, and the nuances of, of the different roles that medics find themselves in professionally um but i think you're right um you know it's about identifying what if we start from a point of what what how can we make this make this happen and so therefore that is about the early preparation knowing the medical forms reading the medical forms talking to people drawing out the information that may not be in medical forms you know for one reason or another well i think that um you know we were out in ireland on a training weekend with a company who, who bring their people together to do a training weekend before they go out on a on an adventure tourism trip brilliant lots of companies don't that's fine that's cool it just means that as a medic and an expedition leader we have to run fast in the first couple of days get you know get an idea of how people you know what people's capacity is and, and capabilities and and work from there whereas if we have them on a weekend we, we were in the Wicklow mountains we went up took them out trekking and we could you know you're starting to meet people talk to people see where people might struggle you know go oh that's a, a bit of a limp there you know yeah. oh yeah I don't I, I you know I've got a bit of a knee problem I've got okay what are you doing about it oh I'm gonna get a brace I'm gonna see my GP oh it wasn't on your form maybe you know do you see what I mean like so you start to be to you have that preparation time and it enables you to to do more with it i think the more we know the more we can take and as i said we've taken you people with all sorts of medical conditions on on, on stuff um over the years certainly i think um, it's but if we start from that perspective great uh, i wanted to tell a story actually if that's all right about uh, one of the best and, and i hope this might resonate with some of your some of your um listeners and, and viewers um i was on an expedition a few years ago with british exploring um with a young medic uh we only had one medic on that expedition um, so it was an expedition, a smaller expedition, um, and we were both in base camp, and we got a phone call saying that a girl had slipped over. This is, so this is on um, Askia Plains, um, very uh, volcanic plains. Um, the girl had slipped over in the camp, a huge cut, flap injury on her forehead, um, 
uh, at this camp. Could could we come out from base camp? We had vehicles. We drove out. Um, first aid had been done, so we missed the first aid. Missed all the clearing. You know, stopping the stem in the flow of the bleeding. Obviously, you know, an injury in this area is, is bleeding quite heavily. So they'd, they'd stopped the bleeding. She was fine. She was conscious. Hadn't been unconscious. Um, and he he did his assessment. I was chatting to the other team, sort of getting the picture of what was going on. And he came back to me and said, look, got a couple of things here. Um, I could I could suture her up. She needs suturing. That is gonna, that's a big flap injury. It's going to need suturing. He said, I could do it here now. And she'd go back out on, in the field with the team for the rest of the, 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 the next day, at the day of, the, of their, their phase. Uh, he said, but the problem is out the sutures we've got are quite big. And if I give her that, that those sutures in the field, uh, she's going to end up with a really large sort of, you know, Frankenstein-esque scar on her on her head. I think that it'd be better for her to go to uh, get her to a hospital. We're a couple of hours away from from a, a, a good hospital. We can get her out, get better quality suturing, and bring her back into the field maybe tomorrow, um, and she'll be fine. She'll have a much better girl of 15, sixteen years old, much more pleasant looking scar. And, and, that, and I said, okay, fine, you're cool. Like, I'm going to go with what you do. Let's go. And um, that's what we did. And I reflected on it afterwards and, and, and spoke to him about it. And I think that was one of the best medical decisions I've ever seen from a young junior doctor um, on his own, pretty much, in the, uh, on the, in the field. I think it was only one doctor. He might have been another doctor. But anyway, he, I said to him, I said, what I really liked about that, and this is, is that you put aside your ego, you put aside your um, the ability to be able to go into uh, to teach on courses in the future and go. Oh, I remember this time when I was I sutured this girl up in the field in a in a lava field and all this sort of stuff. You put aside all that for the benefit of your of the of the young person, but also for the whole expedition in terms of recognizing that we weren't that far away from from help that could have been better than the help that we could have given. Uh, so he has no Gucci story. He hasn't got a Gucci story about how to sew up this girl's forehead in the field um so you know and i think that that to me is like the epitome of good expedition medic work like he doesn't have the gucci story to tell but what he has got is an, he's got a, 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 a casualty that and i saw her three or four months later and it's a tiny little almost like harry potter-esque scar rather than something massive on her forehead um and i think that that's testament to him as a doctor and his decision making but also to the fact that he was able to put his ego and all the other you know even the opportunity to put to to do suturing in the field you know he put it all aside for the benefit of the, of the casualty and, and the expedition as a whole and i think that was a really you know that, that to me is a really poignant medic, medic story um yeah absolutely and um i like as well that he sort of came to you with a choice as well you know it's like i can do x or i can do y and, you know, there's benefits and pros to each of these. But I think sometimes involving the expedition leader in those decisions is um, it's, it's a really good for the relationship between the, the, the leader and the medic. Um, but also it's not like the decisions that we make are um, don't impact the rest of the expedition or the, or, or the expedition leader. So um, I think it's important yeah. to involve you in those in those decisions, too. Um, the other thing I was just going to touch on here was that. Um, so in my, my previous experience on a on a ship, um, I used to have a catch up with the captain uh, every night at about 8 p.m. He'd go on watch. I'd go up into the wheelhouse 
um, bring him a couple of biscuits and uh, have a sit down with him and do a little debrief of the day and what had happened, who I was worried about, who I wasn't worried about. I'd noticed this, let's just keep an eye on this or maybe this person needs to be on light duties a bit because they're suffering with seasickness or whatever. Um, and that was a really useful thing to do. Um, uh, so, so A, I guess I just want to touch on that, that, that debriefing or chat, chat and relationship between the medic and the, and the leader but also um, highlighted to me that it's actually quite a lonely position as an expedition leader where you don't really have anybody to talk to um, if you are having issues yourself or if you're just missing your kid or, you know, whatever. Mm. Um, but the expedition medic is potentially the only person you can talk to on the trip who's going to keep that to themselves. Yeah, and I think that's recognising that both the medic and the expedition leader, if they're the only two on, on a on a, on a trip for example um they they are reliant on each other they are part of a team their, their team and i think that's, that's important, important to establish, establish that quite early, early on. on um that yeah and they can share because i think a reflective leader and and i think per personally leaders should be massively reflective um you you do need to look after your yourself as well you know um you know, and sometimes you have to do that on the hoof, don't you? Because you've got, you know, at the end of the day, you haven't finished. So if, if for example, we're talking about adventure tourism, you get to the camp or the tea house or, or wherever it is you may be, the hotel, at the end of the day, you, your job's not done. You know, I worked, I worked a lot of winter seasons for um, Exodus doing mountain bike trips in, um, in Morocco back in the 2000s. And um, at the end of the day, well, my job certainly wasn't done. I had to make sure the clients were all sorted and in their rooms and you know and all their demands have been met at the end of the day and then go and fix all the bikes and with with the local crew hang out with them for a bit and then covered in grease and grime and then get, and then finally do my admin before having to then get to dinner to then be a raconteur for dinner to entertain the clients like they didn't see any of that so yeah and that does you know I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit more I, I, I keep myself to myself normally when, when I, I, I deal I manage it quite well myself, but I think you're right. An expedition medic and an expedition leader potentially are the only two people that can, can do that. And I think it's, it's definitely worth developing that team approach and the support network for each other. Um, definitely. And that, that, that. working and relationship happen, you know, is really important, I think. And that's, that's what I mean about part of the debrief really is just keeping your expedition, you know, appraised of all the situations going on. Uh, they don't need mm. to necessarily know all the nitty gritty details and stuff, but you know, you can give them a bit of an overview of the medical situation and this is who I'm worried about. This is who I'm not. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Not least because there's sometimes overlap and people will sometimes, um, appear to be struggling me medically uh but actually it's more of a mental block or it's more of a um i want i want a medical out i want the doctor to tell me it's okay to go down um yeah and, and yeah. that's where the, i think the conversation between the medic and the, the leader comes in really handy it's because actually like this girl's saying that this is what's going on however uh you know medically she's fine to continue so we need to find some other way to motivate her yeah i think i think so and i think yeah, I, I, I'm totally agree. I think it's definitely a, a balance. It's definitely a balance, but it's also being self-aware, and I think recognizing that leaders need to be self-aware, um, and also aware of their impact as well on each other and on and on the clients, if they yeah. or, or participants, you know, whatever. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I guess. Uh... 
thinking about leadership um, and including the medic, I guess, within that leadership team, um, what what sort of challenges have you come across and how have you how have you overcome those, whether that's I'm thinking more in terms of group dynamics or interpersonal challenges. Maybe you don't get on with somebody or, you know, you're having a really hard time getting through to somebody. Um, have you got any examples or top tips and tricks for how you approach those situations? Um, yeah, like there's always going to be challenge. To me, the biggest challenge is people. It is it, like when you boil it down is, yeah, yes, there's going to be logistical challenges on everything vehicle challenges there's going to be you know the more complex the expedition the more challenges of that ilk will, will be there um good planning preparation as we as we discussed around dealing with the, the you know, medical issues uh, is, is key having you know thinking through your plan b's thinking thinking through your contingencies etc but the the dynamic challenges are the people um you, you know whether that's conflict whether it's people's um uh people's history the, the, you know the, the the worlds they come from i've worked with some high net worth individuals who you know who are hugely goal focused uh, and not very willing to listen to other people because they don't in their you know they don't have to in their other lives and, and things so you have to build relationships with with people um you have to try to understand people so you know it starts with your self-awareness but ultimately extends out from that uh, to, to how you might manage working understand other people and where they're coming from so again to know the people whether it's clients or other leaders um on your expedition i think is really really crucial because it does limit the amount of interpersonal issues that can occur i think they're the biggest challenge they're the biggest challenge to to an expedition leader um and i'm sure the same applies to, to medics in that respect um you know logistical issues can be dealt with like turning up at a hotel and all your rooms have been sold off and then having to then improvise and go and find other rooms in other hotels or whatever you know that that's just management isn't it um whereas dealing with people requires a, a an approach you have to think it through so um there's some there's some work done by um keith grint uh, around um, wicked tame and critical problems so identifying that you know some some tasks you do are, are tame because they're the same things you do you do, do they're, they're process driven they're you know people come to you with issues around um you know, you, you know it, their own personal stuff that's that, that they're just dealing with but it's tame it's doable it's manageable um some problems are critical so you have to deal with them like you have to hit them and some are some are wicked they don't have a direct answer and they need they need they need you need to find approaches and keith grint suggests there's three essentially three approaches to that a wicked problem is normally dealt with through leadership a tame problem is normally managed through management uh and a critical problem is normally dealt with through command like you have to do something you know, so that vote trying to identify what the problem might be or the issue might be is your first thing and then finding the right approach He's done some work above that, which is around actually the best way of managing it is using all three and balancing all three uh, in, in a term that he calls agonistic governance. Um, uh, in the way that you, you might approach wicked, tame and critical issues. But anyway, but the point being is that 
you know, if you uh, uh, interpersonal and, per and people issues come under that wicked problem, you know, it's a wicked problem that needs need leadership. So, you know, that's the they're the techniques you might be using to get to know so, people, emotional intelligence. That that makes a lot of sense to me. I guess definitely resonate with that. And um, I'm just thinking about maybe some broad categories of um, of uh, challenging uh, challenging personalities, challenging people. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you've got the the extremely motivated. Um, so I'm thinking about uh, people who are maybe doing things for personal reasons or for charitable reasons, um, who have a huge investment in success. Um, so should we start with them? Maybe how what some of the sort of maybe issues and and th techniques you can use to manage that. Sorry, so that first bit again. The manage what? So if you've got a group of individuals who are or person who is extremely motivated, um, whether yeah. it's for charitable reasons, personal reasons, but they are extremely invested in success on their expedition, um, how do you how do you manage that um, with your different leadership techniques? Yeah, and again, it, it, it comes back to that recognizing that, that that's that's what motivates that person. So I think a you know a emotionally intelligent um, expedition leader. It picks up on 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 that, identifies that as that person's motivation early on, um, and and I think building relationships with people is crucial to that. You know, find a commonality, find a, a common link, but then use that as an opportunity to, to to maybe then try to tailor some of that, and you know, remind them that we're part of a team. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing ambition. Like, you know, but we are part of a team, so we're gonna. And, and sending those critical messages at different levels. So it might be one-to-one, -one, it might be within a group setting, in a briefing setting, going, guys, we're all one team, we'll all get there, but we'll work better if we get there together. So we're going to move together. If you see you, you're separating out, that's fine. I'm going to give some time for people to move ahead if they need to, because if it's, you know, if we stretch, everyone can stretch their legs, but just remember there is, we are part of that. And then and then in a one-to-one, -one maybe, uh, you know, whether you're walking alongside them or you're, or you're you know, sitting down having a chat, um, reminding them of the, the fact that it's a it's a team effort as well and it's amazing that they've got this um, this brilliant motivation to do it but yeah we all have to get there and yeah yeah, there's, there's, yeah that, those, that, those sort of having things. those having that, those conversations with people i think one of the nice things about expeditions is that you do get to know a huge range of people and as a as a reflective leader you should be able to build good strong relationships with people and from that understand what motivates people so that you can yeah. then use that in a situational terminology you know, be able to tailor your leadership style to, to to fit or your leadership terminology to fit that client so that client is or participant is still able to achieve their aim because ultimately at the end of the day that's the wonderful thing about meeting lots of new people because you broaden your horizons and your perspectives and your, your your thinking but also you get to enable people to achieve things they never thought necessarily was possible yeah, I think that's one definitely. of the nice things, particularly with guiding, particularly with the, like the guiding the, you know, the, the the more adventure tourism things. You get to do that. Well, or, or it's, the same happens. When, you know, I, I I set up and ran an expedition a few years ago for a uh, a group of scientists and to go into the jungle, and you know, they found a new species of parasitic worm. Oh, wow! Like exciting dreams and souls. I was five years old, you know, looking at David Attenborough documentaries and reading his books and thinking i'll never never get a chance to do that's to be awesome. involved okay i carried the generator that powered the lamp that found the thing but 
you know, I was part of it, but that's, you know, you get to help him, that you know, this particular scientist achieve his dream of finding new species, but being part of that vicariously to a certain extent, you know, that, that fits my dream, you know? So I think that's the joy of it, of, of being an expedition leader or being involved in expeditions regardless. Yeah, definitely, you know? definitely. You can be, um, as an expedition leader in the medic, you can be part of that, you know, helping people achieve those things. Yeah, uh, piggybacking on people's dreams <laughs> to achieve <laughs> your own. <laughs> Some, something like that, isn't it? Um, and uh, the other sort of group that you mentioned of, I think I haven't actually experienced this myself, but, but high net worth individuals who are not used to being told what to do uh, and who perhaps maybe think they know better. Uh, how do you sort of approach that one? Yeah, that that's very much about building those relationships and goes back to competence credibility and and currency like yeah definitely in terms of competence and credibility you've got to you sort of got to get yourself into a position of credibility um in their eyes doesn't matter about how credible you feel in your eyes but you've got to get credible in their eyes um you know don't get me wrong like they're not all they're not all, they're not all assholes like i mean they, they are you know they're, they're driven people with high performance expectations, because that's what the world they live in, um, regardless of how much money they may may make. Or, you know, don't get me wrong, we get, you know, you can work with lots and lots of high performance individuals that aren't high net worth, but are very driven, very motivated, as you said. So, you know, it's, it's no different. It's just that they're, you know, their expectations might be different or mm -hmm. they, you know, their, their willingness to, to listen to others may not be. So it's just about establishing those relationships. And, and gaining credibility in their eyes. Um, and as well. and I, I guess the uh, third group of people I was going to bring in is you know, potentially challenging, and you'll have a lot of experience of this from British, British exploring, um, but um, young people, and particularly young people who've experienced challenges in life or disadvantages or anything like that, um, can, can be particularly challenging sometimes on expedition, but very rewarding as well, I will add. Um, but how do you yeah. go about approaching that as well? I, to be honest, it's very. It, it's, it's the same, same sort of thing. It's yeah. very same. Yeah. We, we all, we, you know, we all have to establish that credibility in the eyes of of, of where that person is coming from. You know, the, the you know their starting point. Um, and I think you know it, it, it's a lot of the time in in those situations, you know, young people they haven't experienced a huge amount of stuff. Some of them have experienced some really, really weird. You know, a lot of stuff. Uh, maybe on the more negative um, uh, basis, but again, it's about it's about helping them understand, you know, helping them achieve what they need to achieve. And they may not know it at that point. They, you know, they may not know what they what they can get from an experience like that. So, um, building credibility and building relationships with young people is, is far more important than whether we hike them up a hill on day one. Uh, you know, much rather we spend some time in base camp playing some games getting to know each other doing some one-to-ones you know really understanding people finding out you know or, or some group work around everyone establishing um, some commonalities and some common threads because yeah you know and then then refocus on what the mission or the aim of the expedition is and i think you know building strong relationships with young people and those, those expeditions is absolutely crucial um and and not you know young people see through adults very quickly don't they if you come storming in or you have particular traits they'll either crucify you for it or they or, or they or they won't 
believe in you, you know, you've got to establish those relationships um, with them so that you can you can take them with you. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I really like that approach in general. But build key themes there is is building the relationships, um, understanding the motivations, and um, I guess building yourself some credibility, but also understanding where they're coming from as well. Um, mm. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah, I think, and, and um, their lives may be massively um, opposed to the lives and experiences of most. Like if we're talking about youth expeditions. Um, you know, let's focus on British exploring and some of the other more commercial British exploring is obviously a charitable organization, but they're obviously commercial expeditions, school groups and things, you know, a, we may have been, it may have been a long time since we were at school, for example. So that, that, that puts us at a, a slight disadvantage um, to, you know, we have no, we're not, we're not relatively close to where their experience level is. Um, but also we may not have experienced half the trauma or the issues that they may have experienced, which is why they're, they're coming. So we have to be able to, you know, we have to try and put ourselves in, the, in their position. You know, we work in a sector where, which isn't massively diverse. You know, um, gender has got definitely got better over my time in, 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 the, in the industry, in the outdoor industry. Um, let's say get better, but it's, it's, it's definitely um, been some changes. But in terms of... Um, race and ethnicity and, and background it has, it has it's not particularly diverse so therefore how might we relate to a young person who grew up in a very traumatic in a city area if we, that's not the area we come from you know um so yeah I, that that means a lot of work on, on behalf of expedition leaders to build credibility with, with with that because a lot of these young people who have seen adults in those positions you know in a negative light yeah, uh, as well. So, but don't get me wrong, we, as you probably recognise from, from your Yukon experience, the relationships you build with those young people, like, they're amazing. Absolutely and I amazing. think the outdoor environment is really conducive to it. And especially, I, I, I love the British exploring kind of um, process and approach to things. And I think it's a really gold standard in terms of um, medical leadership on an expedition anyway mm. but um yeah the, the the outdoor environment really does allow you to have some really quite deep conversations with people really very quickly um yeah you do you do definitely get to know your your participants yeah. extremely and we quickly. should search it out as well expedition leaders should search it out uh, because you know you you meet all sorts of people I, I did a trip earlier on this year to do a typical ascent with a group of people from a a commercial um, adventure tourism company and like you know just meeting a guy who has a company that does builds um medical devices actually for um tracking um babies in maternity units to go puts on their wrist and things like, like amazing like developed this company from scratch and, and developed this bit of tech and then another guy who owned a hotel group but also owned his own plane and was into flying and just like just a, and then a, a lady who's retired but had worked for 30 odd years in, in in one particular niche business it was just just brilliant like and that that's the, that's the stories you know that's you know i think expeditions and storytelling are really important as well yeah i'm going to take a completely different tact now just to finish things <laughs> off um and we've talked a lot about expedition leadership and um but i'm going to move on to uh environmental impacts and sustainability of expedition so i know we've talked about this before but um you're very conscientious about your personal impact on the environment um and 
I know you commute a lot by public transport or cycling and you sort of avoid flights where possible. I think you, um, you do you dro- drive over to Ireland and you and got the ferry or. I did. Yeah. 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 Um, so just wondering how this kind of balances with, you know, quite a few kind of long, long haul flights or maybe high, high carbon footprint expeditions um, that are obviously your livelihood, but how do you think in, this is going to go in the future? I suppose. Yeah, um, I think this is the this is the big challenge, uh, and I don't have any answers. Like, don't, I, I don't know enough about it particularly, um, and I, I'll admit to that. I don't I don't know enough about it. Um, I'm a big believer that travel is important. You know, it's important for personally. It's important. I want to travel. I, I you know didn't travel as a as a child or a young person uh, outside the UK. Um, didn't have experience. Always dreamt about it. Didn't didn't get a chance to do it. Um, just because of, of, of my, my, my uh, early background. Um, but I've always, you know, I, I've always felt that people learn from being away, regardless, even if it's adventure tourism and they're achieving a personal goal, that there's an opportunity for them to learn about local communities, the environment, the wildlife, etc. I think that, you know, there is a, you know, um, the conversations you can have on a, on a mountain about, you know, particularly someone like Kilimanjaro, for example, and talk about the local community and how they exist and how the mountain is part of their their economic structure and, and what do we do in the quiet periods when they you know when the mountains covered in snow and they can't climb and it's not the climbing so, you know all those are really important discussions to have with your group um to help develop their their, their understanding of the world and i think you know we talked about it earlier that you can't save something if you don't touch it i know it sounds very twee but i think that's fairly important i want my kids to go and see the world I, i've been lucky enough to travel across the world i can deepen my political views around that having seen the world i can deepen my environmental thinking my understanding of, of conservation and wildlife because of what i've been able to do over the last 20 odd years um and i find it and i think that's really important and i know that's a personal thing um but i think it's the big challenge for uh, this sector both from the um the commercial providers sort of side the people that are uh, this is their livelihood this is their business um to think about it and i think lots of companies are trying and i think that's the best we can do at the moment is to try um otherwise we just stop doing it and i think that just becomes too parochial and we become too self-centered and we've seen what goes wrong politically when we become too uh, nationalistic and and too self you know self-absorbed as a as a nation or as a people um i think we've seen the negative side of that um so therefore to expand people's minds think travel is, is important for that but i think we do have to think we do have to think more critically about what we do and, and don't get me wrong like when you talk about when i commute I, I commute to london from devon normally by taking the coach because i you know it saves the drive you know don't get me wrong i've got a diesel car well, a diesel truck we have an electric car as well but like so we're, we're sort of halfway uh, maybe the one balances the other um but i don't think that's right necessarily but um I think we have to think about it. Same with expeditions. Can we be more sustainable on expeditions? Can we think about locally sourced food? Can we think about packaging? I, you know, um, I'm not big on brands necessarily, um, but there's a food provider out there, um, expedition food provider that now produces stuff in um, biodegradable packaging. So when I can, I will always buy their food because they're producing biodegradable. In fact, actually, on a recent expedition in Greenland, um, that company provided the food for that expedition. And it now, and we, and I didn't take biodegradable because I knew I couldn't get rid of it. In, in, you know, I couldn't deal with it. They don't have any composting. I wasn't really going to travel 
back with half decomposing biodegradable bags necessarily, though I did consider it. Um, actually, they're now saying they will recycle the the the, the other the metal the metal aligned um, uh, packaging, which is great. So we were able to work with all the clients. We washed out all the all the uh, the packaging, brought it all back to the UK to to send back to this company for, for recycling. But if we can, you know, the small they're, they're small. But let's let's it's something. It's trying to do something. If we can talk about more ethical practices within the outdoors, whether that's about our kit choices um, uh, or our uh, the equipment we might use, um, mm -hmm. I think is important um, as as well. And I think you know we did an expedition with British Exploring last year to Lake Baikal, and we decided that we'd make fly to Moscow, but then from Moscow to Irkutsk we took the train, you know, and then can work out where we might. Um, how much carbon we saved for doing that versus flying from Moscow to Akuts. Um More recently, I know the British Exploring, for example, are looking at, well, if we're going to reduce our carbon footprint over the next, next five, five years, years, 10 years, years, 20 years, do we need, what's our total mass of carbon that we're, we can allocate for each year, getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and therefore, right, well, okay, then that case means we might be able to outrun one long haul, two short haul, and then we move to one long haul, two medium haul, and one short haul. Yeah, do you see what I mean? And, and, and gradually over the years, it reduces the, the carbon footprint. doesn't stop do us doing what we're aiming to do and what the purpose of the organisation is. Um, yeah, and I think they were talking about doing some sailing as well, weren't they? Sort of sailing to Iceland or something like that as an expedition. Yeah, they did um, that. yeah. I've done that before. Um, I've done a couple of uh, sailing or mixed, you know, surf and turf uh, sort of thing um, where, where there's a bit of sailing. Surf and turf, a couple, I like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I think that you know, it's it's we're all challenged by it. Don't get me wrong, we're all challenged by it. Personally, you know, we need to it needs to become much higher up, and bigger companies and bigger sectors need to be making much faster moves than than the than the adventure tourism or the the, the expedition market. But we we, we have, have an obligation, obligation to do something. Yeah, you know, and I mean, it'll more. only come from consumer demand, won't it? So if we start asking these questions or asking, oh, can you recycle that or can is that biodegradable? Then it starts to sort of yeah. add pressure to the bigger organisations and commercial companies out there, doesn't it? Yeah, I think we said about also, you know, the small choices makes a big difference sometimes, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, this is the, the yeah, one of the one of the big things that gets me a lot of the time is around equipment and, and clothing. You know, we, you know, outdoor clothing is really expensive, and really, you know, it, it's become a la label. Like it's become a, a label on the hill. You know, to have particular things, and I try really hard to, to, to you know, not. To, I can't afford to to buy all that expensive stuff. So try and look at better produced stuff, and then, but it's very expensive. Patagonia, for example, very expensive. But you know, is there better ways we can we can work with that? And rather than having to having to go and buy t-shirts from Sports Direct, for example, that are cheaper, but may have been made in a in Bangladesh in a in a in a, in a sweat. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We can't we, we can't do everything, and you know, um, you know, and I've I always think some been of the manufacturing gear. Some of the manufacturing processes for certain, like waterproof fabrics, etc., are mm. very, very harmful to the environment. Um, but it, you know, yeah. if people don't know about this, they don't know about the choices to make, do they? So, yeah, start the conversations, yeah. promoting the awareness. Um, and something I put in my notes here about sort of the environment and expeditions and travel, etc., is that people won't save what they don't care about, and it goes along with what you were saying about um, if, if they can't touch it, they won't care about it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and and you know, and I think I think back to. Um, you know, I've worked in youth expeditions for, for most of my career, at least one, maybe 
you know, one a year, one every couple, couple of years, um, working with young people. And I, I also wonder how many young people that we may have touched that have gone and done those those expeditions that have then gone on to do massive work in environmental studies or, um, uh, you know, natural sciences or conservation that is all playing a role in it. And they wouldn't have done that if they hadn't had the chance to go on an expedition in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that is a a good place to leave it, thinking about all the the lives that you've touched over the years and influenced and helping to to change the world one expedition at a time, as we sort of (laughs) said at the beginning there. Um, great. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, for your knowledge, no um, having Hope a great chat. Um, thanks very much, James. Really fantastic. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, Cheers, to see you soon. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.